This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 218, Christopher Slight, Winter Mountaineering in Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today we have Christopher Slight with us. And Christopher Slight is a mountaineering enthusiast from Scotland currently. He is also the host of the Mountain Podcast. And so we're going to talk about that later in the show. But Chris grew up in the UK and has moved to Scotland where he now lives in a national park within sight of some of Scotland's high peaks. And I'm really excited to visit with him about that. He's a a new mountain biker, just took up the sport, and he also enjoys rock climbing and mountaineering and especially winter mountaineering. Christopher, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be on. Christopher, fill in the the bullet points there. I gave just a little bit of information, but tell us who is Chris, what's your story, and how did you get started in adventure sports? Well, I got started through the Boy Scouts in England, which, you know, I guess is a really common route for a lot of people. Um, My dad as well was quite keen on walking and we used to go on holidays quite a bit up to the Yorkshire Dales in England uh, and also down to Cornwall where my grandparents lived uh, which has some beautiful coastal walks. So I'd been introduced to it that way and then I actually lived in a place called Hertfordshire, which is just north of London, uh, and it's which is very very flat. There aren't any mountains at all. I think the highest bit of Hertfordshire is, is about uh, sort of two or three hundred feet altitude, pretty low. But luckily, Hertfordshire Scouts had a base up in Scotland in the uh, well, what is now the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park. It wasn't a national park back then, actually. And I, when I was about fourteen. Uh, we we had a sort of opportunity to to go up and spend a week in the mountains and, and I can remember and and I always try and think of this whenever I, I I'm offered an opportunity and I and I'm wondering whether to take it because I was thinking shall I go on this course none of my friends are going it was a sort of introduction to mountaineering course and uh, didn't have any other friends going my dad said just just go you'll have a great time and so I thought, okay, I'll I'll go, I'll, I'll see. And that was the sort of beginning of a, a lifelong love affair with the mountains for me. And in fact, you know, some of the friends I met on that first week are still the people that I climb with, walk with, canoe with now. And I just think, wow, what if I hadn't made that decision? How different would my life have been? Uh, and that's what triggered it all off for me, really. Wow. So it was, isn't that something when uh, when it just kind of the last minute, well, I don't know, I don't know, and then you do something and it changes your life. I actually almost didn't go out the night that I met my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and she was not going to go out either. She had already gone to bed. And it's just kind of funny because for whatever reason, we both decided that we would go out and we met each other. And now we've had a lifetime together. So it's amazing how the small decisions can make such a huge impact. I I think so. And it's a philosophy that I try and live with now because it's very easy to turn away those opportunities either because, you know, you're you're a bit tired or you think think you're maybe a bit short of cash or 
you just say, oh, no, I don't know. If somebody offers you a, a chance to go on a trip somewhere or do something or maybe even try a new job for a while or anything. And I just think that so much can be changed by taking up these opportunities. And, and I do. I, I think my life would have been very different if I hadn't have taken that opportunity. Uh, I arrived in Scotland. It was really good weather, actually, which is quite unusual for Scotland. And we, we may talk a bit about that later on. Um, but it was, I think it was uh, sort of early, mid-April, can be still full-on sort of winter conditions in in the mountains of Scotland at that time of year. But it was really, really hot and sunny, although there was quite a bit of snow around. And uh, I just thought, wow, this is amazing. Of course, I I came back, I uh, went back the following year, and uh, the weather wasn't nearly as nice. Um, but it, you know, there was there was something about mountains and snow, and also the sort of kit you need with it. Um, you know, I love sort of packing an ice axe, packing my crampons, and and that sort of stuff, and and heading up uh, into the high mountains and into the snow. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. I try to get at least one high peak a winter and if possible more um, because I, I also love it. It's such a different experience than in the summertime. But tell us more about Scotland. We have a lot of listeners from all over the world and, of course, many in the United States who may have never been there. So what are the Scotland, the Scottish Highlands like? Uh, I mean, Scotland is, is really an incredible place. It's, I guess, on a world scale, you know, it's quite a small country. But it's a lot bigger than you realise. And I think for a lot of people even uh, who live elsewhere in the UK when they first come to Scotland and realise that, you know, you'll cross the border with England and you've, you've got a couple of hours drive before you get up to Glasgow. And then you could carry on driving for about five or six hours before you finally got up to the, the north coast, the far north coast of Scotland. But it, it has, uh, you know, dozens of quite distinct um areas you've got the sort of rolling uplands of southern scotland um which n maybe not quite so spectacular and not so much sort of climbing not so much sort of cragging and and, and rock and and steep faces but still beautiful to look at and walk amongst nonetheless and then you've got uh, the the southern highlands uh, which are mountains of a, around about sort of uh, between two and a half three thousand feet a little bit over three thousand feet um, strongly influenced like a, a lot of Scotland's mountains by the weather that comes in from the Atlantic which is what gives us these superb winter conditions uh, a lot of moisture combined with the cold uh, and then you know moving up further north um, you've got the mountains up the west coast and, and then into the far northwest which you get these fantastic isolated remote peaks really really big days out where you're not only maybe climbing several pitches but you've also perhaps got uh you know three hours to get into the mountain and three hours to get back out or even longer um and then across over uh in the east we have the cairngorms which um again are sort of different mountains much more um sort of bulkier with plateaus and things and but but very steep faces and lots of fantastic climbing there and then you've got the islands as well so all the way down the west coast of scotland you have um just this this beautiful run of islands the inner and outer hebrides um not so many um uh, of, the, of the higher peaks on on those apart from sky where you have uh probably you know the the best uh, mountaineering expedition that you could have 
in the UK, uh, if not a, a lot of Europe, I would argue, which would be a, a traverse of the Kulin Ridge, uh, which most people do in two days, but can be done in, in one long day. And then a lot of smaller mountains and spectacular scenery in the other islands as well. So there's just so much variety to the place, so much to do. And it, and it really is a haven for anybody who likes adventure sports, because whatever flavor you like to take them in, be that sort of climbing, mountaineering, long distance backpacking, mountain biking, road cycling, canoeing, Scotland can offer it. Mm, man, it sounds delightful. So Christopher, I have recently kind of caught on to the idea of prominence for peaks. Rather than how tall they are, how prominent are they? And the definition of that is how high the peak is above its nearest saddle, you know, to a, to the next peak. But when you look at a list of peaks by prominence, then it's kind of really telling because a lot of the high peaks aren't very prominent. So even though they have high elevation, maybe they're their base is actually not very low. So the peak itself is kind of small above its surrounding terrain. And in Scotland, when you say 3,000 feet, um, some people might think, well, that's not very high. I mean, Denver, not even in the mountains yet, is at 5,000 feet. But that's zero prominence, right? But you have nearly a full 3,000 feet of prominence with those peaks, don't you? It it depends, like, whereabouts you are. I mean, in the Cairngorms, often you can you can start pretty high up. But yes, I mean, that is completely what makes uh, certainly winter climbing in in Scotland a lot more serious than you might think and 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 a, and a lot bigger days because quite often you are starting from sea level uh, and and certainly if you look at at Ben Nevis so the north face of Ben Nevis is one of Scotland's sort of premier winter climbing um destinations and you start pretty close to sea level so they're all big days and and I think even when you're on some of the islands and you're looking at, at peaks that are only maybe just over 2,000 feet, they're rising straight up from the sea. So not only are they, you know, sort of bigger days, but they, they look quite spectacular. It's always amazing to see a mountain sort of rising straight up from the sea. Uh, and even if it's only two, two and a half thousand feet tall, they do have this this presence about them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in Colorado, one of the favorite sports here is climbing 14ers. So they're 14,000 foot peaks, which is quite high. But many of the peaks, you start to climb somewhere around 11,000 feet. So 3,000 mm. vertical feet is, is what the climb really is. You're doing something similar to that in Scotland then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For for a lot of these peaks, you know, you've got... um. Uh, it, it's a big walk-in and you're doing a lot of steep walking and if, and if you're winter climbing you've got a pack with with ropes and, and a rack and axes and crampons uh extra clothing you, you've got to you've got to lug that quite away uh, and and some of the um uh, you know s some of the corries in in glencoe for example have a, have a real reputation for beasting your legs quite early in the day and, and especially when it's early in the season and you're still getting your winter fitness and you're maybe starting in the dark because it's November and December and, you, and you've got shorter days and and sort of toiling your way up these steep slopes to actually get into the corries it, it's, it's really a big part of the day that there isn't an awful lot of sort of roadside winter climbing ice climbing available in Scotland some years if it's really really cold but most of it You've got to put the miles in first. Mm. Well, that sounds really delightful. And, you know, I have not been to Scotland yet. And I say yet because I'm definitely planning on coming and, and enjoying some of those sports you were talking about and seeing the lay of the land. But in the photographs that I've seen, 
I don't see a lot of trees. I see beautiful windswept mountains. Am I describing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, having you know, I live in the middle of a massive forest, so there are areas <laughs> that that do have. <laughs> I live in the sort of Queen Elizabeth Forest Park, uh, which is a, a forest park within the, the national park. Um, so, what what you see quite commonly is a lot of plantation forestry so this is like acres and acres of sitka spruce um there there is there aren't huge areas of indigenous woodland which which is a shame because the areas that you do find are um as i'm sure you can appreciate in in the states are just the most most beautiful experience walking through sort of ancient forests so but that's changing uh, i mean they, there's a the, the mission of most conservation bodies in scotland at the, at the moment is you know well part of their mission is to plant a lot more native woodland so there, there's a huge amount of that going on we're at a strange cycle at the moment with the rest of the forestry because it was put in sort of post-war so it went in in the 50s 60s so it's just reaching you know the time you know, in the last 10 years is when they've started harvesting it and it's quite an odd experience because you could have visited an area for decades and got used to the forest and then suddenly within a couple of months it's clear felled so and we have a lot of clear felling that that's going on at the moment a lot of areas that I've got extremely used to over the years and uh, it's quite disorientating but also really interesting because suddenly you're in these spaces where you've never had a view and and you're you're looking at these vistas thinking wow this is actually a really really nice view from here but I never realized so yeah, I mean, there's the significant areas of Scotland are are sort of woodland and and forestry, but I mean, nowhere near what it would have been historically. Hmm, that's interesting. So, in the the Western United States, especially the Northwestern United States, there are the old natural forests, and there's all the debate about logging in those forests, and can we do that more responsibly, or how much of the area can we protect and never have it logged? And there's just a lot of debate about that, as there should be. And but there are some mm-hmm. places, especially in the southeast part of the United States, where people have planted forest as agriculture. And then they clear cut them, just like you're talking about. And people are aghast. You cut the trees. And then they say, we planted the trees. (laughs) This is a farm. (laughs) You know, it's a little different approach. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, that's absolutely the case. And in Scotland, I think that the forestry industry is worth about a billion pounds a year. It's, it's big business for a, a small, country and it, and it's very important it, it's it's quite i mean here it's managed by a body called the forestry commission and it, it's interesting over the, the last uh, decade or so is that their their function has shifted a bit so they're still there to manage the forestry and and fell it and harvest it and then replant it but uh, you know a lot of these forested areas have also become hugely important to recreation uh, and and this is you know certainly for things like mountain biking there's loads they're putting loads and loads of trails in through the forests uh, and and encouraging people to visit whereas you know 20 30 years ago um you know a lot of this forestry would have been impenetrable really really difficult to get into but now you know those those tracks that you you see running through a lot of the forests have been opened up to people um and and that's part of a a wider change in sort of access rights that we've seen uh, you know over the last sort of 15 20 years in Scotland which you I mean you you talked about with with Bob the other week on on the episode with Bob Cartwright from the outdoor station 
Now, we had this uh, access legislation that came in 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 sort of 2003, I think it was, in Scotland. Uh, And, you know, part of that has been an opening up of the forests a bit more. Well, that sounds delightful. I definitely need to get there. My family would enjoy that very, very much. And what I'm finding out, though, from talking to you is that I can't plan a two-week trip. I need a two-month trip. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, you should come prepared for sort of multi-sports and uh, to do to do quite a lot definitely but you'd be very welcome you'd be very welcome to come over i would uh i'd I'd take you up a few hills if you did oh that would be really really fun speaking of going up some mountains what is it like winter mountaineering in scotland in in detail tell us about a trip that um was especially challenging and and rewarding i i think um and a a couple of trips in in recent years that i can think of as, as we've said you know the mountains on a global scale in Scotland are not massively high. You know, they, they top out at just over 4,000 feet, uh, the highest one, Ben Nevis. But they sort of make up with that, with the sort of fierceness of the, the weather patterns. And also, you know, as we've talked about, you're often starting from sea level. So I think there's, there's a couple of days that comes to mind. Uh, um, one of them in, in the Cairngorms a couple of years ago with three friends where we climbed on a crag which is called the shelter stone so uh, that actually you you do have a fairly high start with that it, you start off at the the ski center car park uh, so you can get up pretty high but to get to this cliff you've got to sort of cross the Cairngorm plateau and drop into another a valley or a glen as they're called in Scotland so already that adds quite a bit of adventure to the day because if you're out in in bad weather as as we were on that day you've got to do some quite serious navigation. It's so easy to get disorientated and lost in the hills of Scotland because you're often out in, in fairly poor weather. So uh, this day, I, I think, I'm trying to remember the name of the route we were climbing. I think it was called Western Union Grooves. So in Scottish grades, that would be a 4-5, which is a sort of low mid-grade climb. Uh, I, I I have to confess, I, I know nothing about the how you grade winter climbs in, in the States. Maybe you can enlighten me on that in a minute. Um, so you start, we started this day off with this great sort of adventure, navigating through sort of snow and poor visibility across the Cairngorm Plateau. And then you, you sort of drop into what feels like another world because you've You've left the ski centre, which is really, really busy, obviously, and you've got the uh, cable cars going up and down, loads and loads of skiers, loads of climbers walking into the the more accessible quarries. But you sort of drop into the Loch Avon Basin and it's just white and frozen and peaceful and, and, you know, not so many people go over there. And, And in fact, that day we had this entire cliff to ourselves. So there's four of us on two separate routes, uh, and as, as soon as we were we were off or outside of each other, didn't didn't see the other pair all day, and then we had this just this really absorbing climbing, and a lot of the climbing in Scotland is mixed. So uh, we we do have some good ice climbing, but um, you know we don't have those super long periods of very very cold weather often during the winter. So you're often doing a mixture of you know climbing on ice but also rock and frozen turf very important in scotland um so we have that we then had sort of four or five um maybe six pitches of of really sort of absorbing mixed climbing and then you top out and in into the sort of gloom of dusk and then you've got the challenge of 
navigating back across the plateau as it's getting dark and and finding your way back to the car park and actually you know i really enjoy the climbing but you know a big a big part of a scottish day is the travel to and from the crag and using your skills as a navigator and a, and a map and a compass and and walking on bearings in in zero visibility perhaps and there's a tremendous satisfaction and i can remember this day with uh, my climbing partner rob and uh, my other two friends were completely out of sight by this time just trudging across this plateau in the dark in the wind uh, in the cloud and then just popping out at the right spot and which is yeah so so satisfying and then sort of back to the car park well after dark but for those sort of days where you start in the dark and you finish in the dark and you've got five or six pitches of really absorbing mixed climbing in the middle they're they're the days for me that I I really really love and they're the days that you know every time I do them I think yeah this is why I like winter climbing Mm, wow that sounds like a real adventure I uh I have to confess, I have a very poor sense of direction, and so when well, I'm well, hiking through, so the, do I. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I'm hiking through the mountains, um, I have to use the lay of the land a lot. I, I take a compass with me, which I try to avoid using just to build my skill. I can orient myself by the stars and the sun and the moon and that sort of thing. But when the visibility goes away, wow, that can be that can be kind of crazy. So what you're saying is in Scotland, it's it's frequent that you may not have good visibility. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is with Scottish winter climbing is that you, you very often climb in poor weather because you can't wait for good weather because we get so little of it. You may get one or two periods or sometimes no periods in a winter season where you have a prolonged period of, say, high pressure. You're dealing with these big low pressures rolling in off the Atlantic quite often. Uh, and yeah, it's often really poor visibility. But, you know, you talk about sense of direction, which made me life be- laugh because I have a terrible sense of direction, but I've always viewed that as a real advantage when it comes to navigation because I never trust my instinct and I'm always forced ah. to look at a map and compass, which is generally a better thing. And I, and I know people who do have a good sense of direction often who will rely on that a bit too much and then you know they get lost but i mean obviously these days you you, um you know we we will take uh you know take a a gps on the phone and we've got these fantastic uh maps ordnance survey maps in the uk uh, which are absolutely superb and you know really enhance the outdoor experience here and in recent years you know you've been able to get those available as an app on a smartphone and you can you can push the screen and it'll pinpoint exactly where you are on a map and and that is you know i do use those and they are tremendously convenient and they do um you know save a lot of time especially at the top of a climb when you're you're topping out maybe a you know in a cliff and you're not exactly sure where you are on the map um but there is a real satisfaction to using the the map and compass tools and I, and i guess that's part of um you know, being introduced to the outdoor, outdoors as a scout, you know, that, that was part of the things that you were taught. You must be able to navigate. You must be able to use a map and compass. But it's certainly, it, for winter climbing in Scotland, it's an essential skill and, it, and it's a skill that is just as important as good climbing technique uh, because it's no good you being a super hot ice climber and getting to the top of the crag and, fin- you know, finishing a route. If you can't, get back <laughs> you're going to get lost on the on the way back you're not going to have a successful day 
Uh, and and in fact, you know, a lot of um, incidents, accidents that that happen in the UK and that end up with the mountain rescue teams being sent out are because of that. They're not necessarily because of of big accidents on climbs, although they they do happen, of course. It's because people haven't been able to navigate and they can't get back at the end of the day. Sure. Well, orienteering, as we call it in the states, is a, a sport of all you know, all in its own right, and a lot of people really enjoy it. And the first time I heard of it, I'll just be candid here, Christopher. I, the first time I heard of orienteering, I kind of chuckled. I thought, "Oh, that sounds kind of geeky," because people are are counting their steps and and staring at a compass and trying to find points on the map. And but you know what? I was completely wrong about that. The reality is that knowing those skills is very beneficial, but it's also fun. When my kids were young, I would uh, go into the forest behind our house and I would um, tack dollar bills to the trees and then mark the locations on the map. And then I would come back and hand the map to the kids and hand them a compass and I'd say, go get the money, right? And we had so much fun doing that. And the kids loved it because it was a little treasure hunt, you know. It, it is a good skill. I mean, orienteering. So orienteering in the UK is, yeah, I, I guess it's it means the same thing. It's actually... You know, it's a sport of navigating, and you know, I've I've never done that. Um, I don't know. Maybe I should give it a go. It might, might be it might be good fun. But I I just I think um, you know, you don't have to treat it as a sport in its own right. There's there's a huge amount of of just satisfaction in in knowing that you can use these very basic skills, a piece of paper and a magnet, to get yourself across huge areas. Of, of space that you would be completely lost in otherwise and, and and i think it's it's one of those skills that is maybe sort of waning a bit because you know gps tools are just are so good and it's so tempting to use them and like i said i use them myself i really enjoy using them but it, it's quite nice to know that as a backup if my phone loses battery or it can't get a satellite fix or whatever that I do have this this skill. I can pull out the map. I can pull out a compass, and and I know that I'm pretty sure I can be able to, you know, find my way out of most situations with those two bits of pretty primitive technology. Well, it really is valuable too. I have to share another funny story, Chris. Um, this summer we did a through hike of the Holy Cross Wilderness, and for about six days there were no trails where we were. Simply, they don't have trails to go where we wanted to go, and so we were orienteering without any trail or anything like that to find our or navigating might be a more correct word, to find out where we were. Well, on the sixth day, we intersected a trail, and we were going to follow this trail to another trail that would lead us to a lake. And we turned on the trail that goes to the lake and found ourselves completely off somewhere besides where we wanted to be. And we were exhausted because it was the end of a long day of backpacking, and we were in the wrong place because we trusted the trail. And we kind of chuckled because we had no issues when we didn't have a trail going exactly where we wanted to go. (laughs) But as soon as you let your guard down and you quit watching your navigation, that's when these things happen. So I encourage people, learn how to do it, right? That way you're not dependent on trails or batteries in a GPS unit or a phone. I mean, we, we've all got those stories, though, of, <laughs> of getting lost. Uh, I mean, I've, I've I've had my fair share of that. And, and usually it's happened because... The the third most important tool in navigating is is using your brain and concentrating and and that's the thing that's that's so easy especially if you're walking with friends and and chatting away and you know it, it's it's hard mental work a lot of it and I've I've done that where I've it it's happened to me a couple of times where 
I've picked up a path that is maybe more or less on my bearing and I've thought, well, it's going to be easier to follow this path and it's just about on the bearing. But obviously then the path has, has slowly sort of like drifted off in the wrong direction. And, right. and I've, I've been in a situation a couple of times when I've, I've maybe popped out the cloud and thought, I'm actually on the wrong side of the mountain here. I'm going to have to haul my way all the way up and over again. It's, it's easily done. Oh, that's fun. So let's talk about temperatures just a little bit. When you're doing this type of winter mountaineering in Scotland, how cold is it? Well, it, it's quite a lot of the time um, you're looking at temperatures that are maybe – now, you're going to ask me to <laughs> – I'm going to have to convert to Fahrenheit, am I? I, I can it, convert. In our money, I'll convert. Give us Celsius. A, I'll, I'll punch it into my converter yeah. here. In our money, you know, you, you really don't want it to be um, warmer than about freezing point. And, it, and it's best if if it's around sort of minus three, minus four. So I, I guess what, there's 32 degrees Fahrenheit and under around around there. So you 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 don't want it to be uh, warm and melting. You, you need it to be below freezing point. Having said that, you know, it's quite common to start the day when it is a bit warmer. And, and often you'll find that you know, high cliffs can be uh you know because they've got maybe a bit of breeze on them that are keeping them cold enough that that there are sort of you know it's good enough conditions to winter climb the the thing that we have to watch out for here well, as, as anywhere is is the, is the wind chill i mean quite often you find yourself finding in, uh, climbing in in quite strong winds and that can significantly lower the temperature sometimes you know we have winters where you might get sort of prolonged periods down to sort of minus 10 degrees celsius um it's it's probably rare to go out and in, in in those sort of well it's sort of, it's you just don't get those temperatures that much in the uk you know generally you're around yeah between sort of minus five up to zero Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small.
Well, you're certainly far enough north to experience very cold temperatures, but it's the moderating influence of the Atlantic, I believe. So with that moderating influence comes tons of moisture. So is it quite humid? Mm. I mean, I, you were talking about popping out of the clouds. It sounds like you're you're hiking around in nearly 100% humidity. Yeah, I mean, it's the humidity that, that gives us the fantastic winter climbing, though. And, and the, the classic thing you know that we have in scotland over a winter season is this freeze and then thaw and that builds up like really good conditions a really good snow ice good ice um and and especially if you're on a cliff like ben nevis where there's a lot of very you know world sort of classic standard ice routes um they they grow but with this sort of freeze thaw cycle that you get um but it's they it's that moisture coming in off the atlantic and then sort of being dumped onto the, the the faces that that gives us these you know incredibly sort of wintry um these incredible sort of winter conditions with the snow and ice so yeah i mean it it's ideally you're not climbing in the rain sometimes sometimes that it may be a bit rainy some quite often you may start the day walking in the rain um but i i think if if you were to pick out a feature of winter climbing in scotland then coping with moisture and coping with being wet is is generally something that you've got to get used to and you've you've got to manage Mm. well it sounds so refreshing and i get kind of excited just thinking about climbing in a new environment because almost all of my climbing has been in the colorado rockies right and so this is what i know but what you're talking about sounds delightful Really, really fun. Speaking of, you have climbed other places. You've done some travel. And let's see, mm-hmm. you said that you have made trips over to the Alps. You've been to the Himalayas and also the Canadian Rockies. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, the Alps were the first place I visited. The, well, the Alps and, and uh, the, some of the mountains of Norway. Um, uh, that, in fact, the, the trip I did to Norway was the, the first sort of trip away from home, so just with friends. So I think I was 18 or 19 and uh, I, I shudder to think what we got up to then. I think we were we were lucky in a way to get through it. I mean, we had a certain amount of knowledge, but obviously when you're in the UK, you don't deal with glaciers at all. And then as soon as you're on the continental Europe, you do, uh, which adds a whole new sort of <laughs> objective danger to watch out for. But Norway was really good. I've done a lot of climbing in the French Alps and the Swiss Alps uh, and a bit over on the Italian side as well. And like, you know, that's a very different flavour to Scotland. You pretty much only ever climb in really really good weather and um you know it's it's you you've generally got i mean that's the other thing you don't have in scotland you never really have to have a camp or a bivy you don't have to spend you can go and have an adventure in a day and be back for a hot shower and dinner which is the other nice aspect mm. of scottish winter climbing um but i you know i used to love going out to the alps and yeah, i haven't really been out there since we started a family and we have kids and i, I just don't do those sort of holidays anymore which is which is fine you know we do other stuff but i i really enjoyed um you know climbing in the chamonix valley and also climbing in switzerland uh, doing mountains that just are a bit bigger and have a different approach to them uh and then i went over to nepal at the end of the 90s and we went to do a peak there called singuchuli or fluted peak which is six and a half thousand meters wow uh, and uh that is a it, it classified as a trekking peak, but it's it's got a tricky approach to it and is actually a, a difficult mountain to climb and, and difficult enough that we, we we didn't actually get to the top of it. And I I wasn't 
like super keen on Himalayan climbing. I haven't been back. I, I, I think part of it was because, again, we were learning. I was out there with a group of friends and none of us had climbed in the Himalayan mountains before. And I, I think you know, we weren't really prepared for the huge sort of loads and the logistics involved in, in climbing these really big hills. But having said that, the the journey up to there's a sort of trek from the road up to the base camp was just the most wonderful experience. I really, really loved it. And and the whole trip has got a very sort of special place uh, in, you know, in, in my memories of, of trips that I've done. Uh, partly because we we spent uh, two or three months out there and spent quite a bit of time traveling around the Kathmandu Valley as well, uh, and just a, a wonderful country to visit. Uh, and the last uh, the last big trip I did, which was the year before my first daughter was born, that was to the the to BC to the Waddington Range. So we went in to climb Mount Waddington uh, on the Bravo Glacier route, and. Uh, uh, didn't get to the top of that one either, but had an awful lot of fun. That what I found with that range was it was a really nice balance between that accessibility of the Alps, which is quite nice using cable cars and uh, sort of you know being able to get up really high very quickly. But then that that sort of erodes that ad- adventurous feel a little bit, and uh, with with Canada it felt like a, a lot more of a, an out there adventure but it wasn't quite as on a massive scale as as the himalaya mountain himalaya mountains and it didn't have a lot of complex logistics uh, we we used a service uh, called white saddle air and um there's two brothers who have a ranch and uh, one of them i believe has a seaplane one of them flies the helicopter and after a really long drive up from vancouver you arrived there we stayed the night and then uh there were six of us and uh, i can't remember the guy's name now but he flew us in two trips into the glacier where we set up our base camp and then we're pretty much on our own there's no one on the side of the mountain that we were so i had this really um sort of out there feel quite adventurous feel you've got to be really self-reliant um uh, but at the end of the trip you get picked up by a helicopter and don't have huge amounts of of I think it's normally sort of three days walk bushwhacking from the coast if you want to walk in. So we were quite glad not to have that. And it did feel like a nice combination of, uh, yeah, somewhere not too big, but a little bit more remote than the Alps. And I love that trip to Canada. And as soon as I can, I think um, I I would love to go back and go back to that range and spend a bit more time time climbing there. It it was a lot of fun. We had a, a, a base camp, then we had sort of, uh above that uh sort of climbed for a day above that and then built this huge ice cave for all six of us which we used as a um a base for two or three nights um and including the the day that we made an attempt on the summit um so it was a a really really fun expedition and i loved canada as well i a wonderful place oh I, yeah i agree canada is delightful and it has some very remote areas but like you said logistically it's a little bit more doable perhaps it's it's a perfect balance mm-hmm. very nice so i i have to ask you about about mountain biking and the reason is because you said you just started and i'd love to get your perspective on the sport from someone who's just dipping his toe in the water so to speak well i have a sort of when i was um i had a bike up until I was in my sort of early 20s, but it was a road bike and I really enjoyed that. And then I I just moved somewhere where I moved to uh, London 
and uh, I didn't have room to keep a bike. So I sort of got out of of cycling. And then when I, I guess it, I'd never got back into it because it's it's always a big investment, I think, when you start a new sport. You know, you've got, you've got a lot of equipment to buy. And I was really getting into to climbing and hill walking and focusing on that and doing these trips that we've been talking about. And it's only in the last... I guess the last couple of years. So my kids have bikes. My wife has a bike and they go off cycling. And I, I started to feel a bit <laughs> left out about that. <laughs> I wanted to, to join them on the trips. But then uh, I I started to read about um, this, what we call in the UK, bike packing. I don't know if you, is it similar? You call it bike packing we in, yes. in the States? Yeah. So where you're combining this sort of really lightweight overnight camping or bivvying with traveling long distances and on a bike and scotland is just perfect for that you know i was talking about this sort of network of forestry tracks that we have and hill tracks so i thought well i quite like that i'd like to get a bike um to be able to go out with the kids and just where i live is just one of one of the sort of premier mountain bike areas of scotland anyway so uh i decided right this year um i'm gonna take the plunge and buy a mountain bike uh and with with a view to the most stuff that i'm going to do is going to be off-road and start off by doing some small trips and then uh next year i would really love to do an episode of my podcast on bike packing and go off and do a trip and, and record that so that's the plan uh i knew nothing about bikes but luckily i got lots of friends who do and they told me you need to get a hardtail mountain bike for what you want to do which is what i've done and i basically yeah i literally took delivery of that on monday this week and i had my first trip out this morning uh just um along a forestry track and then ended up with a few kilometers of single track uh lots of mud lots of water lots of rocks a little bit of pushing the bike but boy it was fun (laughs) it was really really fun and it's it's i guess you know this is obvious to anybody who's who rides a bike but it's just being able to look at a map and think oh i'm walking i'm biking i can really stretch the distance i'm doing and i can actually really make some fun journeys and just i was just out for three hours but did this really nice loop all off road i literally had sort of 500 meters of road at the finish and that's it um from the house and it was a didn't see anybody on the route I was on and yeah I'd spend a little bit of time pushing the bike I'd you know I'd obviously I don't have a huge amount of of technical skills yet on the the steeper and more difficult ground um so there was a bit of hiker bike involved but it was really really good fun I loved it I can't wait to do more and I definitely can't wait to try and combine it with some overnight stuff maybe maybe next year next spring Mm, Boy, it sounds like a ton of fun. You know, I've been mountain biking off and on for a few years, but it was just this season when I actually got enough skill to be able to just thoroughly enjoy a quick, curvy downhill, that sort of a thing. Mm. And in the past, I was a road biker, like yourself. And when I got on the single track trails with, you know, narrow trails and and tight corners and some severe penalties for going off, you know, where we bike here, if you you go off the trail, it's a cliff or a long tumble, one of the two. So, you know, it, it was a little intimidating, and I found myself fighting the bicycle a lot at first. And recently learning the skill to get the bike 
to corner the way that it should and do what it needs to do, and I, I was able to quit fighting the bike and just go and enjoy it, then it feels much more like uh, skiing on a black diamond or something like that, you know? So it, it, mm. it gets more and more fun as you go, and the more skill you learn, the more fun it gets. And uh, I had to ask you about it just because I, I'm really enthused about it right now. You know, we did probably... I'm going to guess that we've done 20 sizable mountain bike rides in the last eight weeks or so, and it's just been so much fun. So we've had a ton of fun and, with that. And do you tend to do sort of single days out, or have you done any multi-day stuff? I have not done multi-day trips yet, and part of the reason for that is I do, I'm not geared up for it. You know, you can put all your stuff in a pack and put it on your back, but if it's heavy, you're going to be so top-heavy that you're not going to be able to bike well. And so getting the gear that keeps the weight you know, the, the panniers and what have you, the bike packs that go in the in the frame of the bike and on the handlebars to keep the weight low enough that your center of gravity allows you then to go off trail and still, you know, have confidence. I'm not geared up for that quite yet. Still, though, I mean, that's that's the thing is you can have just a lot of fun in one day, can't you? I mean, you can, you can travel a, f- a fair distance and have more than enough fun, I think. Oh, certainly. And where we bike... It's the vertical feet more than the distance, I think, that gets us. It's pretty common for us to do 3,000 vertical feet on a ride and wow. uh, up end and back down again. And so, you know, you get an amazing workout even if your distance is only 10 or 12 miles. So it's, uh, yeah, we, we've just had a ton of fun with it. So welcome to mountain biking. That's exciting. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been reading huge amounts about it and watching lots of YouTube videos. And yeah, I was really interested to listen to Jim just a few months ago on your podcast talking about his tall divide. And I'd, those sort of trips sort of blow my mind. These these people that are, are, are racing for sort of days on end with minimal kit entirely off road. I just think that's that's an incredible thing to do. Yeah, it really is. And I am looking forward to doing more of that in the future as I gear up. Now that I have the skill set, it's going to be a lot of fun. But, you know, I really enjoy listening to you. You have so much fun information about Scotland, about winter mountaineering and all this sort of thing. But you've created your own podcast and it's called Mountain Podcast. It can be found at mountainpodcast.com. Tell us about that. Well, I launched it a year ago, November last year. And it, it, I, I launched it as um, a way, as I said, I'd, I'd worked in radio for a number of years and then just found myself uh, working in a different part of the BBC where I wasn't doing any radio production. And I was just a bit frustrated. I had this huge pile of, of stories that I wanted to tell and no outlet for. And of course, I thought, well, you know, I can just podcast which is just the brilliance of the medium that it doesn't require a huge amount of commitment or investment at the start you can just give it a go so I thought well if I don't I'm just going to regret never starting it and there there was also I I thought there was a a bit of a a gap in the market in outdoors podcasts so I listened to a lot of um, you know interviews sort of talk show style outdoors podcasts but I couldn't find many that were doing stuff uh, so more sort of um, story driven. So in the, in the style of of a you know a This American Life um, story or a, a Radio Lab story or whatever, um, were those sort of more produced features. And that that was the sort of radio I'd always made. So I thought, well, maybe I should just give it a go and put it out there. And so I, at the moment, I I do one a month. And one, one, which is 
one feature a month. They're usually about between sort of 25 to 40 minutes long. That's about enough that I can manage. There's um, th- there's a huge amount of editing involved in, uh, in in producing these features, I find. So it may take, you may be out for a day recording it, um, but I'm usually sort of for every day I'm recording, I'm sort of three or four days in the studio editing. Um, right. which is which is fine I, you know i really enjoy that part of it um you know i've i've always enjoyed that that bit sort of sitting there in the studio and and cutting things together mixing them with with music and location and sound and things so and but it's just um i i am so glad i started it it's it's that thing about right at the start talking about just taking those opportunities and and just running with it and seeing what happens because you know as as you'll be aware sort of running a podcast you get to speak and meet and talk to such interesting people and hear so many amazing stories and people say to me where do you where do you find all these stories or where do you find all these people and i i think you know once you're in this world and you're talking to people they they sort of these the, the stories and the people self-generate people say you've got to talk to this guy you've got to talk to that that person and uh it's that that bit hasn't been a problem at all so it's yeah i i really really enjoying joining the podcast world uh well it, it is it is a ton of fun and you know your show is quite a bit different than our show we do two shows a week and ours is an interview format and you know we we go through a ton of information about all sorts of different sports your show is more highly produced and edited and it's lovely it's a work of art it's very fun to listen Thank to you. it just for the the stylistic parts of it as well as for the great stories so i i get where you're coming from um there are a handful of podcasts in the states that are outdoors based that are a little bit more along those lines but i think you may be right there are not that many like that and it's fun it's fun to listen to the stories and to hear the way that you've developed the music it, it's quite a lot like listening to an extended npr story when we listen to your show well thank you thank you very much i mean i th- i think you're right in in the states you do have a more developed podcast market than we have over here in the uk and you've got i mean i've listened to the dirtbag diaries for years which i'm sure you're familiar with and sure. I've, I've always loved that show and then and recently outside magazine uh, launched a show which i really really enjoy uh, a great mixture of interviews and some of the more sort of produced features so there are there are out shows out there um but the certainly the, the podcast market in the uk is a bit less developed and I, I think that's that's partly the fault of of the bbc as it were because you know they they put out a lot of their um high quality sort of documentaries as podcasts and it, it's very difficult as an independent to sort of compete with uh you know something that has has cost thousands and thousands of pounds to make and has you know celebrity voices presenting it so i find myself in a strange position because for years that was me um, putting out radio shows as podcasts and not thinking for a minute what i was doing to the independent podcast market mm. and now i'm thinking mm, i don't know if i like this now but as as a broadcaster it's been a really interesting experience because there are a, a lot of constraints upon you when you're making programs and i made programs for bbc radio for many years and you for a start you've got to cut everything to a really specific time so my standard sort of time slot for many years was i i had to hit 29 minutes and 50 seconds (laughs) 
And it's, it, it is actually quite interesting how often on a first cut of my podcast episodes, how close I am to that figure. It's like muscle memory. But the, the, the great thing about producing a podcast is that it just doesn't matter how, how long it is. And while it's a useful discipline, I think, to learn to edit and to, to edit stuff out and, and keep it sort of quite tight and flowing, it's great to think, well, this story is worth 23 minutes and that's what i'm going to give it i don't have to try and extend it to fit the slot uh and the, and the other thing is i think there's there's a lot of freedom in terms of the format like when i started mountain i thought well i i, I don't really want to have a specific format or a type of story or or bits of furniture that i must sort of hit every episode uh, which is very common when you're making programs for broadcast uh, you can really experiment quite a bit and try different things and take a few risks. And there's a huge amount of freedom in that, which I'm, I'm really enjoying. Yeah, well, it, you're doing a great job with it. It's a it's a really fun show. I've listened to several of them, and I'm going to listen to all of them before it's all said and done. I do enjoy it. I would like for you to go back and listen to our Climbing Mount Parnassus episode that we did nearly a year ago now and it's more along okay. the format of your show though not quite as polished it was a uh, just kind of a fun attempt at a different format in which we were doing a winter mountaineering climb so it's right down the alley of what we're talking about i will definitely listen to that i'll add it to my list what i've done i mean i, I love this when you discover a new podcast and especially one with a huge back catalog like you have and you can just go in and plunder the archives so <laughs> i as soon as i i heard about your show on the outdoor station here i subscribed and then sort of went through <laughs> sort of uh, swiped down the archives and and downloaded uh just on you know four or five that i thought i'd be interested in from the last uh, five or six months so i will i will go back further and look out for that one last year well, Chris, one thing that we do, because we do have a lot of content, is we categorize all of our shows into an episode by category. So if you go to our website, theadventuresportspodcast.com, if you go to the website and click um, episodes by category, then we have everything, the full catalog listed there. So you can say, oh, I want to hear about motorcycling. And so there are the motorcycle podcasts, or I want to hear about mountaineering. So there are the mountaineering podcasts, or maybe it's whitewater or, you know, you name the sport, it's there. And that way you can easily find the shows that you most want to hear. That is a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's actually really quite a bit of work. That's great. <laughs> so I hope yeah. people are using it because it, it does take some time and some effort. But with the amount of information that we have, we felt like that was really valuable for our listeners. So De Definitely. That's quite nice. I suppose if, if you come to an outdoors podcast, but you have a specific set of interests rather than you know somebody maybe listening to one or two and thinking oh no, i haven't heard anything about uh, fly fishing or whatever they can i guess go to your website and just find all the ones they want to listen to yeah and our hope is that people can explore new sports that way it's a big part of the adventure sports podcast is that we want to introduce people to new sports so that people will get out and do more of it we just feel like there's so much value in going out and connecting with nature and being healthy and it just it builds memories and it builds health and and so anyway i we hope that people will say well i've always wondered about canoeing i wonder if i can <laughs> find anything on that so, you know, that way they can cross over and, and hear new things, too. Yeah, we didn't even get on to canoeing. There's lots of good canoeing in Scotland. I do a little <laughs> bit of that, but... 
We'll, <laughs> we'll have to give that a miss, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris, it's been delightful to have you on the show. And what we should do is probably have you on again in a few months and talk about that canoeing and some of the other adventures that you've had because you've got a lot to share and we really appreciate your time today. Well, I would love to do that, Kurt. I'll tell you what would be really good is if I if I do get myself fit enough and equipped to do a bikepacking trip, I can uh, I can maybe come back and, and tell you how that went. Well, I would love that. And we have had several people on the show that have done extensive um, bike packing, and they've also incorporated pack rafting in with the bike packing. So what they do is they go on an extended like 10-day to 15-day or even three- or four-week trip where they're off trail. And when they run out of, or I'm sorry, off-road, but when they run out of trail, then they inflate a raft, put their bike on it, and they paddle rivers to get to the next point. So really fun stuff. We should put something like that together. Wow, that sounds a pretty special trip, that. Mind you, lugging a raft on a bike and then strapping a bike to a raft. Yeah, well, these are are special (laughs) rafts. They're quite light. They're very small but stable. And so there are ways to do it. They actually put most of their gear inside of the tubes of the raft, which keeps the center of gravity very low. So it's interesting what they're doing now. But what a delightful time that would be. So come to Colorado. Let's go play. Oh, I would love to. Yeah, (laughs) I would love to come. I would definitely love to. You know, I've never been to the States before, so... Well, certainly you're most welcome. So again, thank you very much for your time today. And, you know, for all of our listeners out there, get out there and have some fun, but also go to mountainpodcast.com. Give Chris's show a listen. Be sure to come back to us when you're done. But I think Chris is doing great work over there. So Chris, it's been a, it's been a delight. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much. You bet. Take care. Hey friends, thank you so much for all that you have done and continue to do to support the Adventure Sports Podcast by telling all of your friends. Matter of fact, I don't want to get corny here, but jump on Facebook right now and say, hey, I just listened to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks. We appreciate you guys. Take care.